Hey, welcome to week one of Masterclass. We're so excited that you would join us. Uh, we are going to be going through the book of Ephesians for the next six weeks, and this is week one, and we're really going to try to master it. And along the way, Doyle and I are going to try to master some different skills as well, but I would not hold your breath. Uh, it's already kind of rough so far as you've seen. Um, but this is a different series than what we've done before, because of course we've gone through books of the Bible, but this is more multifaceted, is we are going to, on the weekends, kind of get an overview of the chapter. And that's what we're going to do today. And then during the week, through the daily devotionals, we're going to get an up-close, kind of more, um, more specific view on each of the verses. And then on Thursdays, we're going to come back together. We're going to have what's called the debrief. And we're going to have the pastors. They're going to be talking about some of the scriptures and maybe things we weren't able to get to, some of the deeper theology, some of your questions. And then we're going to break into discussion groups via Zoom. And so you got to get signed up for all that stuff. You go to the front page, scgchurch.org, masterclass, and it'll give you a steps of how to get the daily devos, how to get in a discussion group, all that kind of stuff. And there's even a discussion guide that you can download right now to take sermon notes on. So make sure you're, you're a part of that. All right, let's get started. So if you're not a Bible person, you don't know much about the Bible, let me give you just a little bit of context. Is the Bible has two parts. Part one, Old Testament. Part two, New Testament. In the New Testament is really the story of Jesus and all the theological implications of his, his life and death and resurrection. And so if you go to the first four books, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are called the Gospels. And those all give the account of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. After that is the book of Acts. And we just got done with a series on that. And that's the history of the early church. And then right after that are, what, are, what, are what's called the Pauline epistles. It is the letters from Paul. That's really all that it means. And they are written to different churches. If you don't know who Paul is, Paul was a convert to Christianity. At one point, he was a persecutor of Christians. He went and he killed them. And then he has this dramatic conversion experience where he meets Jesus. And then he becomes a Christian. And not only that, but he becomes a church planter. And so he travels around and he plants all these churches. And as he's traveling, he writes letters to the different churches. And in these letters, God uses him to tease out a lot of the theological significance of what Jesus did. And so we see in these letters like Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, that he's writing to a specific church at a specific place. And so what we're going to be looking at, Ephesians, is a letter to the church at Ephesus. And in these, uh, in these letters, if you've ever read them before, you know that there's some really deep theology. It's not easy reading. Paul was a smart, smart guy. He put a lot of deep stuff in there. And so what we're going to try to do is along the way, I just want to point out maybe some of the, the bigger theological concepts, pull out some of the key words, and also point out maybe some of the cool stuff that's happening in the backdrop of these letters. And so we're, if you're a Bible person or not, we're going to try to make this as relatable and understandable uh, as possible and I think it's, uh, it's going to be kind of fun. So let's jump in. We're in Ephesians 1. We're going to start at verse 3, right after Paul's uh, blessing and introduction. He says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so he starts off with a big claim. He says, If you have put your faith in Christ, then you have been given every spiritual blessing in heaven. And you might ask, well, what are these spiritual blessings? I'm glad that you asked. In fact, that's what Paul is going to be explaining for the rest of the chapter. Uh, verse 2, for he, and this is one of our key words, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So Paul is already making an assumption here. 
He says, you need to be made holy and blameless, which means you're not. You're unholy and you're guilty and deserving of judgment. You might think, okay, hold on, where did that come from? Well, let's just think about this for a second. You probably do not think of yourself as unholy or ungodly or anything like that, but you would admit that you're not perfect. You would say, I'm imperfect. Let's rephrase it. Let's say that you're, and I don't know this isn't right, but let's say that you're unperfect. Well, you know what it takes to be holy? Perfection. And so if you're unperfect, then you're also unholy. Okay, so we all can admit we're unholy and maybe we're guilty of something. And we're gonna talk about what that might be and how that happened and we're gonna, uh, we're gonna get to that. But for right now, what you need to know is that you have been chosen by God before the foundation of this, before he created any of this, before you had a name, he knew your name. Before you were born, he said, you are going to be mine. Now, the first question that I have is, why would he choose me? Well, Paul answers that in the next part of the verse. He says, in love, he predestined us. And later in the verse, he says, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, uh, he chose you because he loves you and he takes pleasure in that. And, and it's really just grace. And grace is unmerited favor. And so the analogy is this, is the same reason why parents love their kids is the same reason why God loves you. It's not because you deserve it or you have earned it. As a parent of young kids, I can tell you right now that they have done nothing to deserve or earn my love. And that sounds harsh, but you know it's true. Because think about it, from the earliest of ages, they are completely helpless. They can do nothing on their own. You bring them from the hospital and they just sit there. They can't, they can't feed themselves. They can't bathe themselves, clothe themselves. They can't even change themselves. They're completely and totally helpless and dependent on me and my wife. They're also, they're also uh, uh, undeserving is they do not realize that they have completely turned your life upside down. In some respects, they've kind of ruined what you had going on. They took away all your freedom. They take away all your energy and all your resources. And when they open up their mouth, the only thing that you hear is a giant sucking sound because they just constantly consume, consume, and consume. They do nothing to contribute. They don't have any money. They don't have any influence. They don't have any power. They bring nothing to the table. If this were any other relationship, if it were a business partner, if it were a team member, if it were just a friend, you would have dropped them like a bad habit a long time ago. And to top it off, at the end of it, they're ungrateful. My kids walk around like they're little dictators in their kingdom. Hello, peasants, will you get me my shoes? I don't want that sippy cup. I want the other sippy cup. What are we eating for dinner? That's not what I requested. They think that they own the place. They're totally unaware of how inconvenient and helpless and undeserving they are. And it's as if they have a death wish. They find something that's sharp or something that's high and they either try to run into it or fall off of it on a constant basis. And so we're having to chase them so that they don't hurt themselves. You gotta imagine this is how God looks at us. He goes, you are totally undeserving. You are totally uh, you've, uh, unearned and yet I love you because you're mine. The same way a parent loves their kid is there's nothing that you can do that will either earn my love or that will lose my love. And this may sound strange, but that's actually really good news. Is if you look at a lot of the popular beliefs in our culture about God or about karma, whatever you want to name it, I really feel like it's a, it's a tough way to live. 
Because oftentimes people think of God as a judge. I'm going to get into heaven one day if I do more good than bad. Or God is always watching and so I have to continue to do good things. Or karma, it's going to come back to me and so I got to make sure that I... And it's constantly walking on eggshells. Always wondering where you stand. If you're doing enough. Paul comes and he says, the good news is there's nothing you can do, good or bad, to earn this love. It is simply a gift of grace. I think this brings incredible humility because God doesn't look at us and go, I have to have Cody. He's amazing. Have you seen what Cody can do? No. He just says, you're mine, so I love you. Which just brings humility, but it also brings peace. Knowing that there's nothing that I can do in order to lose his love. So verse five, he predestined us for, and this is going to be our key word, adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So some of you guys got caught up and you didn't even hear what I said after predestined. And it's because this is a really big theological, hotly debated word. And you're trying to figure out, okay, what does that mean? And, and there's these different theological positions. And, uh, you know, how do we balance this? And how do we make sense? Of it? And here's the good news. We're going to talk about that on Thursday. So you can be at, uh, you can tune into the debrief and we're going to go through the different positions and what they mean. But here's what's not being debated. What's not being debated is if God chose you or not. Whatever your position on this is, is he chose you. He predestined you. Now, the question is, how much, of the, how much freedom did I have in that? Does he choose everyone or only some people? What made him choose? All of those are interesting questions, but the question is not, did he choose you? Because he did. And the key word here is, of course, adoption. Now, the question I asked when I first read this was, why would I need to be adopted? Well, you need to be adopted because you're from a broken and destructive family and, and they can't meet your needs. And I'm not talking about your mom and your dad and your siblings. They may be awesome. I'm talking about you're a part of the human family and it's pretty messed up and pretty broken. So if we go back to Genesis and we look at the creation account, we see that God creates Adam and Eve. And in the very beginning, he creates them to be the head of the human race. And so as humans, we're related to them. We're a part of their family. And as a part of that family, the head of our family was supposed to be our heavenly father. But we see that that quickly kind of deteriorates and the story goes south because Adam and Eve decide they don't want to have God as their heavenly father. They want to be in control of their own lives. They don't want to have an authority. They want to be their own ultimate authority. And so when they reject God, they end up bringing this thing called sin into the world. And sin is kind of a complex issue because it's not just an action, like breaking God's laws, doing things you're not supposed to do, but it's also an attitude. It's a, it's a spirit of rebellion. It's a rejection of God in order to follow and worship lesser things. And so when this happened, sin enters into the world and like a disease of our soul, it has entered into every human since then is you and I were born with this genetic spiritual disease called sin, and it consumes us. Jesus gives this illustration with the prodigal son. He says there once was a son who he decided that he no longer wanted his father's love. He wanted to take the gifts that he had been given and go out on his own. He rejected, he said, I, I, I wish that you were dead. I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. And that was illustrating what we did, is we said, God, I don't want you to be a part of my life or I don't want you to be the main part of my life, the ultimate authority. And so we reject him and we go our own way. And the scriptures tell us that we now, as cosmic orphans, experience the consequences of this sin and its death. 
is that when we rejected the author of life, we at the same time embraced death. And that's why we see death and decay around us everywhere. Yeah, we see physical death, but we also see death of our relationships and of our finances, of our hopes and dreams as death surrounds us. And it's because of this thing called sin that lives in the world and it lives in each one of us. And so already you probably have some objections. I'm guessing that when you heard this, that maybe, just maybe, we were born inherently evil, that the sin lives within us from day one. You don't like that idea. And I get it. The popular conception is we're good people. We have good hearts. We're born good, or at least we're born as a blank slate. Well, the reason... um, And maybe your explanation is the reason why people do bad things is because there's social pressures and economic inequality, family of origin issues, genetic predisposition, a lack of education or opportunity. And so those are the reasons why we do things that we're not supposed to do. And so then the solution, of course, would be to fix all of those external issues, which would be great if we fix those things. But and if we fix those things and then follow our hearts, then everything is going to be okay. I gotta be honest, I think that's ridiculous. I'm not trying to be offensive, but I could do a whole series on this. That just seems to be ridiculous to me because do you really believe that Hitler would be a sweetheart if you just fix some of the external circumstances of his life? If he had a little better family, some more education, a healthier, health, healthier uh, self-esteem, he followed his heart. Do you really think that he was gonna be a sweetheart? And I would say there's not a chance because there is something within him. There is some evil that was within him that there is no, there's no, there's nothing powerful enough in this world or no external circumstances powerful enough to explain and fix what was going on in his heart. The problem with it is, is the evil wasn't just in this person. It's been in lots of people. In fact, it's been in every political class. It's been in every race and environment and level of education. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, what their motivation. We see that there is evil in pretty much all of the different contexts of our world. And the only thing that explains it all is the human heart. And you might think that, oh, I'm, well, at least I'm not that evil. I'm not like that. I bet you have thought some pretty evil things before, right? You've thought about doing so. I have. When I'm driving and someone cuts me off, you better believe I've thought some evil things. And you know where that comes from? The human heart. Because it's lurking down there within us. Another objection I I would imagine that you might have is, how is that fair? How is it that we are born with this sinful nature and we are destined for destruction? Well, my response would be, That's how the physical world works. Why think that the spiritual world is any different? Is we feel the consequences of other people's poor decisions all the time. Anything from a drunk driver to a betrayal in a relationship, we experience those consequences for their decisions. Why not think that the spiritual world would somehow be the same? But even if you didn't believe all this and you just thought there's no way that that's true, it doesn't change the fact that you and I have continued to make these poor decisions ourselves. We've already established that we're not perfect, that we're unholy, that we're, bl- we're to blame for a lot of our decisions. Whether you believe that you were born with this sinful nature or not, doesn't really change the fact that you and I have sinned, that we've broken God's laws, we've rejected him, and now we have to figure out what we're going to do. So the main idea here that Paul is trying to get across is in our natural state, we are born into a broken family, headed for total destruction, and we need rescued. 
We need a family that can come and bring us out of this, bring us into a life of love and hope and purpose. And that's what the father's plan has always been. Is from eternity past, he was going to adopt us into his family. And here's the thing about adoption. It's never accidental. So you might have been an accident or a surprise to your parents, but it's never a surprise to God. Adoption is never on accident. It's always on purpose. It always had intentionality. There's always planning. And so God has been planning this since day one. The other thing about adoption is it's costly. As I watched Kyle and Marissa go through the process of adopting, and it was an incredible amount of time and energy and money in order to adopt their son. Because adoption is not an easy process. It's going to cost them something. Well, this is where Jesus comes in. The father plans our adoption, and then the son, Jesus, comes and pays for our adoption. Verse 7 in him we have redemption, that's going to be our key word, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So that word redemption, what it means is it's, it means to be bought out of captivity, implying that you and I were enslaved. Now, what does he mean we're enslaved? Well, I'll kind of cut to the bottom line here. Paul is saying that you and I, we are enslaved to our sin and it is destroying us from the inside out. And there is nothing that you and I can do to, to stop it. Is that we have to be saved and forgiven from it. And so this is big. Let's unpack this a little bit and see if we can make some sense of this. So the idea that you and I are enslaved to sin. Have you ever, uh, have you ever found yourself in the position in which you know what you should do and you know how to do it, but there's something within you that just says, nope, I'm not going to do it. This happens all the time in my life, and it probably does in yours as well, is I know that I should eat healthy. I know that I should exercise. I know that I should spend more time with my kids and less at the work. You probably know that you shouldn't be texting while driving or smoking or drinking that much. Or you name it. You know what you should do, and you know how to do it, and yet you just don't do it. What is that? What is that thing inside of us that battles and then continues to choose the thing that is self-destructive? Paul says that is the sin that is living within you. The reason why you continue to make those poor choices is because there is something in you that no self-help, no amount of willpower, no scientific discovery, there's nothing that's going to be able to fix that. Yeah, you might be able to make it a little bit better, but it's always going to be there. Actually, the problem is even worse, that if you manage to continue to do the things that you know that you should do, you continue to invest in your marriage and in your kids and your career and your health and your future and you do all those things, which is great, you're eventually going to become enslaved to those things. Because here's what happens, is those things become the ultimate priority. And there's really only one thing in this life that will not enslave you. Everything in this world says, I want you to give your life for me. And Jesus is the only thing that says, no, I'm going to give my life for you. There's a great quote by David Foster Wallace, who is not a believer, but he's a well-known author. And he says this, he says, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship and worship, he also means live your life for, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. 
You'll never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. See, the human heart is going to live for something. It will be someone or something. And if it is not Jesus, that thing will end up enslaving you. And so the bad news is that you will be enslaved at the end of the day if you make your life about something or someone other than Jesus. And so this is what Christ came to do. He came to set you free from this enslavement, to, to give you the forgiveness of your sins, to pay for your adoption so that you might become a, become a part of God's family through his sacrifice. This morning at our, uh, our devotionals, the pastors were talking and I was talking about this verse and thinking through some of the, the more difficult theological concepts. And I mentioned redemption and one of the pastors said, hey, you know that bottle that you have? And I had an uh, energy drink, like an energy drink can. He says CRV on the top of it. Do you know what that stands for? And I don't I never, no, I never thought about it. I said, you know, that, st that stands for California redemption value. What it means is if you take that can that's now all old and used and dirty and pretty much useless, if you take it, the state of California will give you money for it and they will redeem it. They'll make it, they'll make it new to be used for something else. And I thought, that's the gospel. That's it right there. Is Christ came and he does the same thing. He says, bring all those who are weary, who are dirty, who are used, who are broken or covered in dirt and shame, and I will pay to redeem them. I will pay with my life so that they can be made new. And here's how he does this. He comes and he lives the life that each one of us should have lived. One that is fully submitted to the Father's will in total obedience. And instead of getting the praise and the honor that he deserves, he takes the pain and the suffering and the punishment that we deserve for people who have been enslaved by sin. And that enables us to then trade places with him is he says, I will take what you deserve and you can take what I deserve. We can trade places if you will give your life over to me. The next part of this uh, passage in verse nine through 12 is probably a whole sermon in itself. And so we're gonna have to maybe push that towards the debrief or towards the devos. But I wanna jump down to verse 13 because we see the third part of the Trinity coming into play. Here's what it says. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Is the Father plans our adoption. The Son pays for it. And then the Holy Spirit comes and produces it in our hearts. He takes this heart of stone and he begins to mold it and make it. And he begins to enable us to receive his goodness and his grace. And eventually we're made into a new person. And so we see all three parts, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all working together in order to produce the salvation in your life. So all this is real deep theology and you're like, I don't even know. I'm not even sure what happened. I don't even know what's going on there. So here's what I want to try to do is whenever Jesus would try to talk about really deep theological principles, he would use these things called parables, which are just made up stories to make a point. And so that's what I want to try to do is I want to tell you a quick parable. This is made up and see if we can make sense of everything that we've learned today. 
So uh, a lot of people in this church have adopted, you heard from uh, Kyle and Marissa, but other people have adopted and some from uh, foreign countries. And if you've ever been to a third world country, especially, um, they, oftentimes the orphanages are not a place that you wanna find yourself. They're really tough. So let's imagine for a moment that you and I are orphans in one of those orphanages. It's not a place that you wanna be. And so every single day we wake up and there is somebody who is in control of every moment of our day where they get to decide what we're going to eat, when we're going to eat, when we go to the restroom, if we get to go outside, what we're going to wear. They are in control of every moment of our lives. And then one day this wealthy, influential couple walks in and they look around and out of all the orphanages and all the kids in the world, they come to you and they say, we want you to be our child. Why me? We just love you. We loved you at first sight. We want, we want you to be a part of our family. And so after a really long process that costs a lot of time and it takes a lot of money, it comes down to this one moment in which your new father writes his name on a piece of paper and you are officially a part of his family. In that very moment, everything about your life changes. It is, turned, it is turned totally upside down. You now have access. Access that people, lots of people, remember this person is influential, they're wealthy, there'd be people who die to have a meeting with them and yet you get to go to him at any point, at any time and say, dad, can we talk? You have full access to him. You have an inheritance. Everything that he has is now yours. You went from having nothing to having more than you could have ever imagined. You now have security. It's not just another teacher or authority in your life. You now have a loving father in whose arms you can be safe and secure and in whom his house you belong. You also have freedom. In that moment, he now became your authority and he gives you freedom. He allows you to no longer be enslaved by all of those people, but he says, you're mine now. And then, he's re and then you're redeemed as you went from having no future to a future that is full of possibilities and purpose. Now, when you head home from this orphanage, something strange kind of happens. All these incredible things are true. In that moment, when he signs his name on the paper to adopt you into that home, all of these things are true, but it sometimes takes a while to realize it. As kids have been known to, when they come out of orphanages to sneak food from the dinner table and hide it because they're so used to having to fight for food every day. And it takes them a while to start to realize that they have been freed, that now they've been adopted into this loving family. And so all the hurts and the habits and the hangups that they've had over the years, they're slowly having to kind of get through and work through and start to realize who they are now. And so that's who many of us are, is... We have been chosen by God. We have been adopted into his family. We have been redeemed. We've been forgiven. And some of us, we just need to start remembering who we are. And so this week, as we study Ephesians 1, I would hope that you would think about these two very important key words. You've been chosen, you've been adopted, and you've been redeemed. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for the incredible blessings that you have given us. Um, Lord God, as we think about our own lives and we think about all the things that you have blessed us with, oftentimes it's relationships, it's material wealth, it's whatever, and all those things are great, but we need to remember the spiritual blessings that you have given us, that you have chosen us to be a part of your family, you have adopted us, and we are now heirs to 
your kingdom. And so, Lord God, that should give us an incredible amount of humility, but peace and gratitude and, and confidence that whatever we're walking through, it's not because you've abandoned us, but because you love us. And so, Lord God, we continue to praise, we continue to thank you, and we continue to be transformed by you. We love you, Lord. Amen.